This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. All right, let's go ahead and get started with our time together. I'm supposed to introduce myself and then uh, open with a word of prayer. So, uh, Timothy Miller, I'm the newest staff member here at the uh, Shepherds Theological Seminary. Uh, The Lord led us and my family from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary in the Detroit area here to, uh, to teach. I initially, I came to teach New Testament, and uh, then they asked whether I might step into more of a dean role, and so I, I'm dean as well as teaching, and I love both of those roles so far, and uh, I'm excited about what the Lord's doing here at the seminary. I'm excited about this topic this this afternoon. It's something that I really believe we need to think about, and we need to think about it at a time period, hopefully, before all the fireworks begin in a life situation. And we've already thought through these sorts of things. And so I wonder how many even here are uh, here because you're already in a fireworks situation or you've gone through a fireworks situation. I imagine that's quite a bit. And so uh, I'm excited about the topic today. Let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll jump right into it. Father, you've been kind to us. You've given us an opportunity to attend a meeting like this where we can think about the truths of your scripture. And I pray today that you would make us better interpreters and executors of your word to be able to share with others what it says and to be able to walk wisely concerning how to to exactly live it. So we're so grateful for the opportunity. We love you, Lord. Amen. We'll begin with reading the text at hand here, and that's in Titus chapter 1. I'll begin for the sake of context with verse number 5. The Apostle Paul tells Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach, and he must be not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Uh, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the Apostle Paul here is highlighting for us what, a, what the qualifications of an elder are. What should a pastor look like? And as he walks through the various categories of requirements, there's one that stands out like a sore thumb to me, at least as it's translated here in the English Standard Version. And that is this phrase, and his children are believers. And there's a reason that sticks out to me, and we're going to address that here in this hour But I want us to begin thinking about this question. Imagine your pastor's 17-year-old son announces that he does not believe the gospel. So he still lives in his father's house, 17 years old. This son, let's just imagine, this son is in other ways completely faithful. 
He's not rebellious. He seeks to live exactly according to the way that his dad indicates. But he just doesn't believe the gospel. And he comes to his father and he says, Dad, here's the situation. I just don't believe. Is your pastor qualified to shepherd a congregation? Now, the answer to that question actually depends on, on the verse we just read here. And you'll notice on the screen that translations differ quite substantially on this question. Notice with me, the translations like the NIV, NASV, ESV, NRSV. By the way, I read the ESV here today, the NLT. They all say something along these lines. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe. On the other hand, a number of translations, and these are some of the newer, frankly, translations, uh, one of which surprises me significantly. We'll learn why in just a bit. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Now, I want you to think about that question or think about that distinction. Is there a distinction between a man whose children believe and a man who has faithful children? That's a really legitimate question and one that uh, sort of depends on what you believe about what it means to be faithful. So we'll talk about that. But I would suggest that those two translations are different and would be read by English readers as different. So then the question has to be, what's the correct answer? Now, what got me interested in this topic, we had a, we had a, a conference at the previous church I was involved with in which a counselor came and he was working through parenting, a parenting seminar. And he has an unbelieving daughter. And so he was working through that topic, but it, it came up in the midst of that, that he had been at a previous church in which he was released from the pastorate because his daughter did not believe. What was fascinating about the discussion, though, was that the man said that the way he found out that his daughter wasn't a believer was she had just received the Christian Character Award at her Christian school. And she called her, him into her room and was just crying uncontrollably. And the reason she was so upset was not only because everybody thought she was this great Christian and she just didn't believe, but some of the first words out of her mouth were, Dad, I know what this means for you. She knew the policy of the church that she was involved with or that her dad was a pastor of or one of the pastors of. And so she knew that her unbelief was going to lead, for, lead to him losing a job. And it did. It ultimately did. Now, he made comment in, in, that, in that counseling seminar that his daughter was one of the most faithful daughters you could ever imagine. She wasn't wild. She wasn't rebellious. She didn't do, I, she did far less than some of the other Christian girls were doing in the youth group and everything else. She's actually a very gr good citizen. She just didn't believe. 
And so he was removed from the pasture. And that, hearing that, I thought, man, that, that's hard. And the, the pastor went back to first, or Titus 1.6. And so that motivated me as a New Testament professor to say, I, I want to look a little bit more at Titus 1.6. So I began a study on Titus 1.6. Ultimately, I was intending to write a, an article, which uh, uh, I, I'm grateful to say has been written and has been accepted for publication in Themelios. So you'll see it in about a year from now. So the the paper that I wrote that leads to this presentation is there, uh, or you'll you'll have access to that at some point. But you, what I wanted to work through today with you is the the process by which I came to the conclusion that the translation that's best here is faithful children, not believing children. And you may fall on the other side of that, and I hope that if you do fall on the other side of that, that you'll at least listen today to the number of reasons why I think faithful is the better translation. One of the odd things about this, at least to me, if you're familiar with the history of translation, a lot of times what happened was the King James took something some way and all the translations followed it. This actually was the opposite. The King James is faithful. And then somewhere along the way it switched and the most recent translations, including the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the one I was suggesting is, is, was surprising to me, because one of the pastors who feels quite strongly on this, that it should be believing, would be John MacArthur. And so the Legacy Standard Bible doesn't say that, and that's partly because the man who is in charge of translating the New Testament section, I know falls on the side that I do. And so, so I thought that was, that was quite interesting. Now, the difference of interpretation comes down to one Greek word. It's the Greek word pista, pista, of which it's a derivative of pistas. And if you know Greek, that can mean believing. It can mean faithful. I will say that the debate for this is not merely lexical. It's not just what's this word mean. It's deeply practical. Of course, people have lost their job over over the, this translation. And I would simply say, as I mentioned in brief at the beginning, we have to begin thinking about this right now. Imagine you're not in a scenario like this. Well, praise be the Lord that you're not. And, and settle it now, because the last time you want to be thinking about this impassionately is when your church is sitting in an elder meeting or a congregational meeting and you, for the very first time, you're thinking of, well, I, you know, my pastor just read this passage, but my Bible doesn't say that, or vice versa. And you think, boy, is we, what is the right reading here? So hopefully today, this afternoon session will help us to think through that. So I'm going to argue on the basis of the lexical, that is the word choice, contextual, theological, and practical vantage points. I believe that every one of these points to the idea that it's faithful rather than believing. So let's begin with the lexical case. Lexical, again, just simply means the Greek word. I, I know that numbers here might not know the Greek. That's okay. You don't need to know the Greek to understand that the, uh, the, the word in the New Testament can have an active and a passive sense. 
And the active sense is certainly in the scripture. The passive sense is certainly in the scripture. In its active sense, it's trusting in or believing in. But in its passive, it's faithful, trustworthy, dependable, or the one that I would actually prefer in this context, obedient. In essence, the debate in Titus 1.6 concerns whether you take this in its active or passive sense. So should we take it in active or passive? And a statistical analysis at least gets us somewhere towards the direction of which is more likely in this case. So what about pistos outside the, Old, uh, the New Testament? In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, every time the word pistos is used, it's used in the sense of faithful, not believing, every time. In Josephus, and now we're getting closer to the, to the New Testament literature, in Josephus, it's used seven times in that active sense of believing. Most of the time, it's, it's the passive sense of faithful. The Apostolic Fathers, it's 29 to 7, so a little bit more weight towards the active side. In the New Testament, Pistos is used in the New Testament, uh, what is that, 67 times, and 54 of them would be in the passive sense of faithful, only 13 towards the... Um, <clears throat> towards the believing side. With Paul specifically, he uses it 25 times in the active, or 25 times in the passive, faithful, only eight times in the passive believing, or active in the believing. And then in the pastorals, it's a little bit more even, and I've excluded the, the use in this particular case where that would fall. The pastoral epistles use it 17 times. Up here I had 16 because I excluded it. But what are its uses? I, I've got here the active uses. So there are times where it's used in the active. So notice these. There are some who forbid marriage, demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. Well, clearly there. I don't think that's to those who are faithful and know the truth. It could be, but I don't think so. First Timothy 4.10, for this reason we labor and strive because we put our hope in the living God who's the savior of all people especially those who believe. Not especially those who are faithful, but especially those who believe. All right, uh, look at 1 Timothy 6.2. I think this was an interesting one because it's within a household sphere. Let those who have believing masters, not faithful masters, but believing masters, not be disrespectful of them. All right, so clearly in the pastorals, the active sense is there. What about the passive sense? Well, look at 1 Timothy 1.12. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me believing. That doesn't quite fit, does it? He considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Or how about 1 Timothy 1.15? This, this saying is believing. Eh, no, this saying is trustworthy. 1 Timothy 3.1, again, trustworthy. 1 Timothy 3.11. Wives, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not slander, self-controlled. Believing in everything? And this one's interesting because it's within the, the commands concerning uh, the, the character of someone, which is very similar, I think, to what's happening with First Timothy, or Titus 1.6. So it's, they're faithful in everything. First Timothy 4.9, this is saying it's trustworthy. We've seen that again. Second Timothy 2.2. Commit what you've heard from me to believing men? That's possible in this case. It could be. 
It seems better to have it as faithful men. Again, saying is trustworthy. If we're faithless, he remains not believing, but faithful. Uh, Titus 1.9. And this one's important because remember Titus 1.6 is just three verses previous. Titus 1.9, holding to the faithful message. Clearly not believing message, the faithful message. And then the other use in Titus, this saying is trustworthy. So every use in Titus, uh, other than the one under debate here, is clearly on the passive side of the, 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 the trusting, trustworthy, or faithful. So the two debated uses I indicate here. So what do we learn from this lexical study? Uh, simply put, the predominant use was passive, faithful. As time progressed, the active became more common, but even by the pastoral epistles, the weight is in favor of the faithful translation if all else was equal. Here's the thing. Not all else is ever equal, is it? So we have to determine not merely on the basis of statistical analysis, but if it was only statistics, then I would suggest faithful is the more likely option here. Now, before I turn to another argument... We should consider one other thing that sometimes is brought up. Nicoletti and Rayburn, as well as MacArthur, both suggest that the word faithful itself would only be employed in relation to someone who is believing. So they say, yeah, faithful is fine. I don't mind if you translate it as faithful because if they're faithful, then they're believing. Okay? And MacArthur says... It's always used to people to whom the context clearly identifies as believers. Unbelievers are never referred to as faithful. I know here, though, as noted in 2 Timothy 2.25, above, this argument works in some contexts, but it doesn't in all of them. Specifically, the question concerns the meaning of the Greek word pistos, and I think this is where they get into trouble. Not the meaning of the English word faithful. Think with me here for a moment. I think what they're getting at is the way we use the word faithful would include the idea of believing. But the question I want to ask is, what does the word pistos mean to Paul in his context? And I think there's a way to make it such that someone would be faithful but not believing. And I think this is quite consistent in the New Testament. How is that? Well, notice on number four here. <clears throat> the word is used throughout the Gospels to refer to servants in a household who were found to be faithful in their obligations. Think about Jesus' parables of faithful servants. Are those believing servants? It doesn't appear that that's what they are. They're faithful servants. They, they do what the, what, the, what the person asks of them. And in some of these contexts, it's not necessarily always that they're believing. Or think of it in 1 Corinthians 4.2. Paul makes a statement that's nomic. It's just a statement of, of fact at all times. It is required that students, or that stewards and students, by the way, as a as faculty member, I believe that as well. It is uh, required that stewards be found faithful. Now, why am I drawing attention to the domestic sphere? Because remember, in the first century world, this would have been the domestic sphere. You had the paterfamilias, right? The, the head of the family, the father of the family, who would then have underneath him the wife and the children and the servants of the household. 
And he would then direct and guide the way that each of these would go. And I think it's within that context that Jesus says this, or that Paul makes it, says this. It's required that a steward be found faithful within his household. Knight, a commentator who wrote an article on this, highlights the way this understanding affects our interpretation of Titus 1.6. He says, Pista here means faithful in the sense of submissive or obedient. As a servant or steward is regarded as pistos when he carries out the requests of his master. So here's my suggestion. Why is this within the, the domestic sphere? I think there's a parallel between the servant in the household and the child in the household in, in terms of a Greco-Roman household. Even in an ancient Jewish household. Because you had the father of the family who would give direction to each of those in his household. And one was found faithful simply by whether they followed the head of the household. Now, if you can command belief, if you can command belief, then I think the only one who would be faithful would be one who believed. But here's the theological question that we're going to have to address a little bit later. Can you command belief? Is that something within the purview of the head of a family to tell everyone in his family that they must believe this? All right. So that's that's part of the question. And that leads to some of the lexical question on how to how the translation and how to bring that over in English. All right. So that's the lexical case. I think the lexical case is on the side of faithful. How about the contextual case? All right, so I've got a couple of arguments here. The first argument is this. The broad context of this passage suggests that it's within that, that each of these things that is required of him is that it's character within the control of the elder. This is why when I was reading through this list, I said that that one seemed odd to me. Why? Because every other characteristic that's suggested here is something that has something to do with the ability of the elder to adjudicate or to, to work through. And my suggestion is that whether my children are believing or not is not 100% in my control. So I know here the text is situated within Paul's consideration of the qualifications of an elder. The chief qualification is that the elder be above reproach or as sometimes is translated blameless. And what follows that is a whole list of character qualities of which the only odd one would be believing children if, in fact, it is that. So faithful, in my opinion, is better situated within this context because it is an adjudication of the character of a father, whether he's able to control his household. And we'll come back to that argument in just a little bit. All right, second argument. The grammar of the passage suggests the faithful interpretation, and uh, for some reason that's... Let me see if I need to change the color here, if I turn it to red. There you go. You can see it now. All right. The grammar of the passage. Notice what it says. Having faithful children... And you'll notice there's no conjunction that follows having faithful children. If you know Greek, there's nothing there. It instead gives you two phrases... And those phrases are not open to the charge of wildness or not open to the charge of rebellion. 
this, the grammar of this passage suggests that these two phrases explain what it means that a child is faithful. I want you to notice, though, what the English translations that take this as believing universally do. Or, well, I shouldn't say universally. They, they consistently do. They add a conjunction. Let me again read 1 Timothy or Titus 1.6. If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery. But there's no and here. Why is the and added? I think the and is added because they're suggesting that there's a couple of characteristics. One is that they're believing and also not open to charges. But that's actually not what the grammar is saying. The grammar is saying he is a faithful child. And then the logical question that all of us ask is, well, what does that mean? And Paul predicted that you would ask that question. And do you know what he gives us? He gives us two statements of what it means. And by the way, these two statements are statements of pretty significant evil. They're elsewhere used in the New Testament of egregious forms of evil. So it's not that little Johnny came along and uh, you told him to sit down and he didn't sit down. You're saying, you're out of the pasture, my friend. Children are not faithful. Um, This is a problem. No, this this is an egregious form of evil that is inconsistent with the character of... uh, of the situation. So I think then it's much better to see these clauses as describing the nature of what it means to be faithful. Third contextual argument, the parallel passage in first Timothy. We are grateful that every once in a while we get parallel passages and those parallel passages, whether it be Colossians and Ephesians, whether it be the gospels, whether it be uh, first Timothy and Titus sometimes help us to, to make sense of what's happening between another passage. And I think that's exactly what we have here. Notice what 1 Timothy says in 1 Timothy 3, 4. The requirement there is that the elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. This isn't the same word, pistos, uh, but it has this sense of, of obedience, of being submission is what it is that the children be in submission to him. Hupotage here is to obey, be in submission. It's different, though one would expect, at least I would expect, that they would mean the same thing. Now let's imagine that there was a different standard. That in one church, Paul says, look, you've got to have believing children. The other church, he says, look, you just have to have uh, obedient children. Which church would you actually expect the stronger standard to be in? You'd actually expect it to be in the Ephesian church, wouldn't you? Where for years the the gospel had been preached and these elders all the way back to to very earlier in Paul's ministry. Titus, on the other hand, Crete was a more recent church situation. You would expect a more lenient form there, but in fact it's flipped. If, in fact, you believe it's the believing. Which leads to some problems, because how do you have elders who have believing children? Um... if, if it's a new church sort of plant, maybe they haven't had time to, um, to evangelize their own children. And we're going to talk through some of those practical issues here in just a bit. I think there's another reason the First Timothy passage suggests a faithful translation here. 
And that is in First Timothy, Paul is more explicitly concerned. Uh, he, he's more explicit why he talks about family requirements. He says this, if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So do you see the analogy that Paul is playing here? He's saying, look, if in this sphere over here, you are the father in your household and your household is chaotic and your children are out of control, then why would we put you in front of God's household to lead? All right. And, and so I think here, this, this context fits quite nicely with the faithful translation. Someone might believe it fits nicely with the believing, but I think it certainly fits with the faithful translation. Summary of the contextual case then. The requirements for an elder are dominantly character assessment. The faithful interpretation fits naturally. The semantics of verse 6 suggests that the words following pistos are a further explanation of the meaning of pistos. And finally, that, that parallel with 1 Timothy certainly suggests the faithful interpretation. Now, how about the theological case? So what I want to do when I begin the theological case is ask this question, what's the strongest argument on the other side? And I think the strongest argument on the other side is that within the first century cultural context, it would have been assumed that the father of a household completely led his household in such a way that he was the adjudicator even of their belief. Everything was under his domain. But I would say that the New Testament begins to challenge that assumption. In fact, it's because of the New Testament that uh, we, we have a, a different viewpoint today. So the New Testament, I note here, allows wives to be free from the religion of their husbands. Think of this in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, even if some do not obey, that is the husbands, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your beautiful conduct, right? So, Peter is suggesting, wives, you don't have to submit to the viewpoint of your husbands. Or consider when Peter or Paul or the New Testament talks to slaves. Does it suggest to them that they need to submit to their masters in whatever they believe? It doesn't. It actually provides what we would call the priesthood of the believer. That believer stands directly before the Lord. And I think if we understand this, Direction, directionality, that, that there are limits to a father's role within the house. There are limits to uh, leadership rules. Then what we say is, all right, what is the role that the father has within this relationship? And I'm going to talk about that here in just a bit. But I think once we understand this, that there's a relationship between each individual and their, their God, I think the arg this chief argument for the believing position is neutered. There's a second reason, though, that I think doctrinally, on the theology side, we should hold to the, er, the faithful interpretation rather than the believing. And that is, uh, as an unashamed Calvinist up here, I believe that the doctrine of election does not comport well with the believing interpretation. Now, it would seem to me that if you were Arminian, you, you would also have an issue with this because there should be uh, the ability or opportunity for the, for the younger person to believe in whatever way he desires. And so you, you might make an argument that way. I'm not going to make that argument because I, I, I don't hold to that interpretation. But if you believe 
that God is sovereign over salvation, then this provides attention for you when it comes to the question of whether you can hold a man responsible for his children believing or not believing. Now, I say the tension here is that the elder really doesn't have control, ultimate control over this. And yet he is not, quote unquote, blameless if his children don't believe. That seems like a moral moral statement, not just a, a ministerial statement. You know, it's best not to have him in the ministry. Okay. But no, it's actually saying he is blame. He, there's something to blame within this man. That seems like a moral fault if his children don't believe. Now, MacArthur says this. He says, people like me who, who think that, that there's, a, there's a tension between the doctrine of election and the believing rule, he says, they have a defective understanding of God's sovereign election. He continues, some interpreters argue that Paul could not possibly hold a man responsible for the failure of his children to be saved if God has not elected them. But that sort of thinking is unbiblical, he says. Scriptural predestination is not fatalism or determinism. Now, here's my response back to MacArthur. If, if I've understood him correctly, and, and he's rather truncated in his statements in this, it seems that he's trying to make an analogy. He's trying to say that a man can hold guilt even without ability. And I do maintain that within one particular situation. And that is our guilt in Adam. If a man has true guilt, even when he's not elect, and thus having liability without ability, MacArthur then seems to make this jump. Then a father can have true guilt for not converting his non-elect children, again, having liability without ability. But my argument would be, I don't think those two things are in any way equivalent. Regarding non-elect people, there is a true basis for guilt in the inherited sin of Adam and in their own sinful acts which hinder them from believing. But Scripture does not indicate that there is a requirement or that it is the parent's responsibility that their children become believers, that somehow I am going to be held responsible for whether my children are believers. So I'd say the liability of the non-elect is clearly taught in Scripture. The liability of the parent whose children do not believe is certainly not taught in Scripture. And so to hold one accountable for that seems, seems rather odd to me. A another tension arises in regard to the doctrine of election. The requirement of believing children does not actually assess the, the elder. I just notice this chart I provided for us. Is it true that great fathers will have elect children? Sometimes. Is it true that great fathers will have obedient children? And though I couldn't say 100%, I would say frequently. Pretty frequently. They'd have, they'd have obedient children. Terrible fathers. Will they have elect children? Sometimes. Will they have obedient children? Rarely. So if we're assessing someone, which I think is the whole point of the, the, this whole section of Scripture, then which would be more likely? The elect, election of the children, that is, that they believe, or their obedience within the home? And I think obedience in the home. 
Uh, the third tension theologically here, it seems to me anyways, just open your Old Testament. How many of the greatest men of the Old Testament had elect children? How many of them had non-elect children? And this scene, I mean, this just to me is, is a pretty clear statement of the fact that God never promises even his faithful servants that their children will be believers. Just think of David, man after God's own heart. Think of Hezekiah. He's got Manasseh as a son. I mean, so, you know, and we could say, well, they, they just had bad parenting technique, but it seems like that would be a component of maybe their godliness somewhere along the way, seems to me. I think a final tension here is the believing view suggests guilt for the parent because of the choice of their children. And I have a hard time squaring that with Ezekiel 18.20. A third component here, and, and you can do with this one as you want, because I know not everyone holds to a two kingdoms view of, of our ethical responsibility, but I would suggest that the scripture does provide two domains of responsibility for a parent. And that responsibility is both spiritual and then earthly. The earthly responsibility is to make good citizens. The spiritual responsibility is to evangelize them. I have lots of control over here. I wish I had lots of control over here. Um, but I pray over here, right? And I give the word and I sow the seed and I pray. But I, I can't. I can't do that work. I, that's going to be the Lord opening my daughter's eyes to believe. But even if my daughters do not believe, I do believe that I can make them good citizens or at least put them on the pathway towards that. All right, so that would be a two kingdoms sort of a doctrine. You could read about that if you'd like. All right, I got to keep moving here. Let's, let's address then the practical case. I think there are innumerable practical problems with working on um, <clears throat> with working out the requirements if we take the believing interpretation. How old are the children being assessed? MacArthur, Nicoletti, Rayburn, Mounts, they all argue that it pertains not only to children in the home, but also children outside the home. For their direction was set by their time in the home. Could really the apostasy of a 40-year-old man disqualify his father who's been in the pasture for 40 years? I mean, this is the implication. Somebody who's 70 years old, their 40-year-old uh, you know, son apostatizes from the faith, and now he's removed from the ministry because he didn't convert his children because obviously they would have continued with us if they were of us, right? The implication is that he should be, apparently. Could an adult converted man be an elder? If his children have to be believers, someone who's converted after his children left the home is in a pretty difficult spot here, isn't he? B is here only because you need two points. So I said, this is problematic. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Number three, how old does a child have to be before becoming a believer? You've got an eight-year-old child he hasn't believed yet. Are you qualified? How about nine? How about ten? What, what, what exactly does that mean? I don't know. I don't know when you have to adjudicate that. Fourth, what if a child consistently doubts his faith? What if a child who was obedient discovers at college they were not saved? Was the pastor really actually unqualified during that whole time? But we thought he was qualified? It's really too bad. 
had this unqualified guy the whole time. But now he's qualified because his child just believed in college. And so now he's qualified even though he wasn't qualified while he was pastoring previously. Again, that seems problematic to me. Now, I would say there are some difficulties, some problems on the side that I would maintain, the faithful side, but I think they're much less problematic. And one of the questions is, how obedient does a child have to be before the pastor is disqualified? That's a legitimate question. Or second, should we assess the adult children of an elder? So, uh, you know, if your adult child goes crazy, then, then what do you do? Now, my, my argument would be that the idea of a faithful child means that that child is faithful within the domain of your responsibility, which is their time in their home, in the home. So I wouldn't assess a man because of his 50-year-old son or 30-year-old son even. Um, I would assess him on the basis of the children in his own home, which I think is what Scripture is calling us to. All right, so let me draw this to a conclusion. The question addressed in this presentation is one that's been faced by a lot of churches, and it will be faced by more. Does Scripture say that we have to have faithful or believing children to be elders? I think faithful is the right interpretation. It's the expected word, definition of the word statistically and within the household domain. Second, it fits the context better than the alternative. Third, the doctrinal case for the faithful interpretation, I think, is compelling. But the believing interpretations are theologically challenging. Finally, even the applicational challenges. Now, I don't, I don't hold to ease of application being the... All in all. But one would assume that a truly scriptural doctrine would be easier rather than more difficult to, to play out within God's church. And I think when you come to those two interpretations, you have a plethora of problems with the believing interpretation. And you just don't have those with the faithful interpretation. And so in light of all of those reasons, I think that uh, the modern move in translations to translate this as faithful instead of believing is the right direction to go. All right, I am supposed to take some questions here. And if you ask a question, uh, I'm supposed to, uh, to repeat it. So any questions uh, that we have for our time together? And we better be quick. <laughs> yes. Give me if you touched on this. I know you kind of did in the lexical section, but sampling of positions from church history, um, Reformation, whatever. Yeah, that's a great question. I didn't get into the church history side, so I, I really don't know. Okay. That's a great question. Yeah. But thank you. Very, very helpful. Well, good. Good. Yes. Uh, Alex Scott has like, written the book on the Wellership. Where, where does he land with all this? I, I don't know if I pronounced his last name right. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I know I've read him uh, in the past. I didn't pick him up for this one, so I don't know exactly where he lands. But he's here, so <laughs> we can go ask him. <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the, the question was, Alex Strauch, how does he take this position? And, uh, and I'm not sure. I, I hope he takes it as the... Uh, the faithful. Yes, Michael. Tangentially related. Does an elder have to be married? Does he have to have that one woman? All right. Does an elder have to be married? Does he have to have that one woman? I don't, I do not believe that an elder has to be married. And part of the reason I say that is because obviously Paul was doing the work 
seemingly of an elder. Obviously, he was an apostolic um, representative, and so, so that is a distinct role. But at the same time, I don't think that it's a requirement. I think, I think what the point, that the overarching theme of the, of the elder is that he is blameless. That is, nothing sticks to him. And so if he has a, a wife, then he's a one-woman man in regard to her. If he's got children, because that's the other question that could come into play. Well, what if someone doesn't have children? Then can they be an elder because they haven't shown that they can control their own household? And that's a legitimate question. Uh, but I think, again, it's one of those scenarios where we just don't have uh, that, that character qu qualification uh, checkmarked, but we don't have it X'd either, right? And so, uh, you know, someone who's married and has children has more that we can look at, but if they don't have those things, it doesn't mean that they're therefore disqualified from it. It's a great question. All right, I don't want to take up anybody else's uh, time. I know that the next people have to get in and start working through, and I know you've got to get to the next one. So I'm going to end that here. If you have a question, comment, uh, rude remark, you can come make that right afterwards here. I'll, I'll be up front. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.